Sounds good to go. Alright. Pretty fall asleep there. <laughs> We're back with uh, with Mike and his he's having his gravel for breakfast. Yeah. <laughs> with his gravelly voice. I know. I'm sounding more and more like Joe Cocker the older I get, I've noticed this. Yeah. I don't smoke, uh, rarely drink. I don't know what it is, maybe it's years of being choked. Maybe yeah. that's it. Rusky. Yeah. Yeah. Do you do physios for throats or there are actually some vocal throat physios in there, so uh, it's a broad profession. Fix my hips first. <laughs> What's the what, What's the uh, predominant profession for people that needs their uh, throats uh, helped out? Singing. <laughs> Singing. Yeah. And, and, and others. Amongst <laughs> others. We'll go into those. Well, uh, as you might hear, we're joined by our first ever guest on the Dance uh, Leads Chits podcast. So. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Tom. And Tom's joining us because he's from uh, Indigard Physiotherapy and he's going to. We've just partnered with them uh, this past week to bring extra benefit to our members and we wanted Tom to come on to um, explain a little bit about what he does. He does jiu-jitsu as well, so we're going to talk a lot about that. And um, I've had a few questions come in, um, which we'll, we'll get to as well. Yeah, it's exciting, man. I think this, for me, is uh, for the, from just quickly from the business before we get into all that kind of stuff. For sure. It's such an important partnership because... On two levels, when Uwe came over, the guy who started in the guard physio, and obviously he's got a lot of experience in grappling. He was the head uh, judo physio right for GB. We spoke about two things. One, it's about the benefit to our members and to ensure they remain healthy and are able to train jiu-jitsu for as long as possible because that's what we all want, right? But two, for both businesses, we share a lot of values and I think that's something that we'll probably explore maybe on a, a different podcast. Maybe we'll get into it today. But I think that's wonderful because what we're doing actually is we're just broadening out our positive message to as many people as possible. And so the Indigard community, I've already been messaged by a couple of people who, uh, you know, are clients of, yeah. of your clinic. And, you know, they say great things about you and they say great things about other people that you work with, including Nuve. So that's just an awesome thing to be part of. So thank you. Indigard for being part of the No, thank you. Family. It's, it's good to be part of it, to be honest. And I think I kind of echo your sentiments that we kind of feel like we share the same values and building that community, but also improving health. I think there's often a big misconception about physio being that you're injured, you go see physio. Um, but quite a few people who come to see me are trying to maintain or improve. Um, and I think that's the essence of jiu-jitsu as well, isn't it, right? It's that self-improvement, that progression. Definitely. Maybe that would be a, a nice place to start. So just with the question of what is physiotherapy? And then maybe we can contrast that with like the specialities that you guys go into. But on a baseline, what, what does physiotherapy mean? And So physiotherapy, and obviously in essence, we're breaking down to physical therapy and they use that in the States more than we use physiotherapy. Um, so physical therapy or physiotherapy is using physical-based interventions, exercise, manual techniques, amongst other things to better people's health. Now, probably not what not a lot of people understand is the three aspects to physiotherapy. Typically what you'll see is musculoskeletal physiotherapists. So treating injuries, bones, joints, ligaments, those sorts of things. But the two more aspects to it, there's neurological physiotherapy. So when I worked for pediatrics in the NHS, I worked 
a lot with children who've sustained brain injuries at an early age, um, working with things like cerebral palsy or people who've suffered strokes. And then alongside that, there's respiratory physiotherapy. So in my last stint in the NHS, I worked on intensive care, which the role itself is more around managing chest conditions. So if you have someone in ICU who's been ventilated and sedated, they can't produce a productive cough, they're at high risk of chest infections. So you'll be the person who tries to get those secretions out of the chest. And then amongst that, I used to work on call. So in the middle of the night, you might get a phone call saying, can you come in? We've got someone whose uh, oxygen saturations are dropping. They can't clear secretions. Can you, it's more of like an emergency type situation. So it's quite a, a broad profession. Right. There's many aspects to it really. And, and generally does someone specialize down one of those three paths? Typically, there are some that are quite well integrated and I think you need to be versed in all three to a degree to understand. So there are aspects of neurological rehab that I'll use in my MSK practice um, and there are aspects of respiratory um, that I use, particularly things like breath work, it's, which I think is a massively neglected aspect of it too. Okay, excellent. So um, then that's like a broad definition of what physiotherapy is. Mm. More um, narrowed down, tell me about uh, Indigard and what you guys predominantly work on. Okay, so Indigard Physiotherapy is more of like a sports specialist clinic, um, but that doesn't mean that we see only athletes. That's probably 20-30%, maybe 40% of our caseload. It's people with general sort of aches and pains. And so Indigard Physiotherapy is kind of the philosophy really, is getting people not just better, but being capable to do what they want to do and to be able to exceed maybe their expectations sometimes. So I actually only joined the clinic in October full-time and I started working part-time around sort of July. So I was a bit of a crossroads in my career. I was a bit, my morale was quite low working in the NHS because I had all this desire and this passion and I was really trying to put it into my job, but I just couldn't. Um, and then I'd made friends with a physio um, through Instagram in London who I cited a post about a clinic in Leeds called Indigard Physio. And then we got talking and I got in touch with Uva that way. And then we just had a lot of conversations um, and it got to a point where I just asked, can I come down and can we have a chat? Um, because I'd like to link with someone who shares the same philosophy as me around kind of empowerment and just helping people see the positive of physio. Because I think a lot of times people just feel that it's, I can only just get to a baseline level of function and for what I saw from Uva and his passion was about getting people better, but getting people independent as well. And so one thing that I think Indigard does very well, kind of two things I think they do very well, is making a specific diagnosis. So being able to actually understand what's going on. And then alongside that, it's being able to get people to walk out independent. So one of the best parts of my job is I'll have someone come in with something like back pain or a shoulder pain and I've seen them for a few weeks and then they'll come back in two or three week break in between and say, you know, I had a really bad day, but I went and did those exercises you showed me in the first week and that calmed it down. And then you give people the tools to manage their problems and their concerns. So you don't make them reliant on you. You empower them and you kind of encourage them to, to manage those conditions themselves, which is it's honestly the highlight of my job. Right. Uh, and how does that... Um how does that contrast from maybe like your previous roles with the NHS and things like that? Yeah, so in the NHS, it's it's not me saying, oh, the NHS is rubbish. And I think a lot of that can go around. I just think it's a, a massively um, strained service. And a lot of the outcomes that you would want to have with patients and clients, you can't necessarily achieve because of the constraints that are placed upon your time. Um, 
And that has an effect on your morale because there's plenty of people when I was in the NHS I just wanted to do more for, but doing more would require me to go far, far, far beyond what my contracted hours were or my time on my resources would, and that eventually led to me feeling just quite burnt out, to be honest. Yeah. Maybe we should go um, quite far back and then build our way up to you um, joining a guard, and maybe that can give some people around your values and why those matched up nicely with Indigard. So uh, where, where are you from originally, Tom? So I'm from actually from Yeadon, just near the airport. So yeah. North Leeds, well, technically North Leeds. Um, just. Just, <laughs> barely. Um, so raised in North Leeds, I did um, just schooled around there, went to university at Leeds University um, mm-hmm. and first did a degree in exercise physiology. And was that kind of something you had always wanted to do? Since yeah, so I always loved sport. I was rubbish at school until I was about 16 and then I realised I could run fast and then um, that kind of drove my engagement with academia because oh, okay. I saw those um, the impact of hard work just in the context of sport and then how that transpired into other components in my life and so I think sport teaches you a valuable lesson about self-improvement and humility. Yeah. And, and what was the sport that kind of got you, got you on the hook? So I started doing 100 metres and triple jump and then did that for a little bit. I was, I was the, I won the Yorkshire Championships in triple jump, and then I did quite well in that for a little bit. But then that went onto the back burner. And then when I went to university, I started to um, pick some training up again, and then um, got involved in skeleton bobsleigh, which is a strange sport as it is anyway. Coming from Eden, it's not <laughs> like I was raised in uh, West Germany. <laughs> yeah. um, and so we went went through that, and then eventually through doing sport and seeing the impact I had in my life and physical fitness had in my life. And then with my degree alongside that, I thought I need to uh, get involved in a profession I'm really passionate about. And uh, during those kind of first, uh, you know, from 16, maybe onwards, when you, when you say you really got into this stuff, what, did, do you experience any particular injuries? Or anything? Um, skeleton was pretty riddled with injuries. Throwing yourself down a track at 80 miles an hour will yeah. inevitably lead to some. Um, so... Had a fractured rib, but the worst pain I ever experienced doing skeleton, it sounds so small, is coming out of a corner, my legs splayed out and just on the outside of the heel, I whacked it on the ice as my legs kind of whipped across and I was just, my ankle was swollen for so, so long. Still think I had a bit of a fracture, but I just kept training through it, but I had back pain for probably four years and it, that got quite serious. And were you fairly diligent with your kind of rehab and stuff like that? Or did you kind of try and plough through it? (laughs) Yeah, I think so. But I think in elite sport, there's a different mindset. It's about getting you to to the event and to be able to compete at the event rather than that sort of sustainability of long-term health. So most athletes who are focused on the Olympic Games, it's about getting to the next cycle, being able to peak your performance at the Olympic Games or at these important events. Mm. And then kind of fitting your rehab in the pre-seasons just to kind of squeeze it in and come back prepared, really. So after after uni, what, what, what happens? What, what do you want to do and, and where are you in life? So I finished university and then shortly after finished skeleton, I was a little bit lost because there's not too much you can do with an exercise physiology degree. Um, and to be honest, I didn't do as well as I could have done in my degree because I was doing skeleton at the same time. So... I did some strange jobs. I worked as an aircraft dispatcher at Leeds Bradford Airport for a little oh, yeah. bit. Using your Eden contacts, as I was You can tell. I did so many jobs at the airport. I did baggage handling, I did check-in, and then 
I've reached the lofty heights of aircraft dispatch. Yeah. I see. And then... Um, Are you correcting everyone's form and they're picking the bags <laughs> up? I, imagine I wasn't quite that. there physio-wise. Yeah, I didn't know what I was doing, to be honest. And then, yeah, and then I, I went into an office job for about 18 months. And it was at that point, I was doing a sports massage qualification. Um, and I just remember leaving work one day and saying to myself, I could leave this at, at 65 with a pension, but I'd have just thought, mm, that was all right. Um, and so I went home and I kind of talked about it with my wife and she said to me, she was like, well, what's three years and 30 years time? And that was a big turning point for me. And as a, when I went through being a student, a physiotherapy student and eventually qualifying, I, I saw that the passion that I had and the interest that I had in my profession kind of just shortened that, well, made that learning curve a lot quicker. So you went back and re-qualified as a physio. Yeah. Right, so, what, what does that look like? What's that process like? So it's just, a, I went and did another undergraduate degree. Right. So it's three years of training again. Um, but obviously I went in there with quite good knowledge about strength and conditioning and physiology, which really, really helped. And then um, I just went full obsessed because it was nice um, to, to have that passion, to be able to pursue what I'm really interested in. It's uh, having done the, the office job that I didn't like and going into a profession that I really enjoy can't explain the difference when you wake up in the morning in terms of desire. So um, after you do your physiotherapy degree, or does it just like physiotherapy <coughs> job for getting fired at you or what so was the case? The, the, the kind of thought process is you go into the NHS, you develop some experience and you eventually um, go into private practice. Um, the problem I found in the NHS is I didn't really feel particularly challenged. Um, a lot of these principles of strength, which it largely is, and um, if people are relatively inactive, quite easy to rehab. And then I just never really felt like it was the culture that was right for me for some more. So, um, and I really liked being in a hospital environment, helping people. And, um, but I like to, I'm one of these people who is, I know what I want. And I think initially when I was younger, my parents would probably have called me hot headed, but I've always kind of knew where I wanted to go and I'll kind of just contact people and, and find that way. And so, I uh, ended up leaving the NHS and then just trying to find the right clinic. So I shadowed a few local clinics um, and then obviously meeting up with Uva was a, a game changer for me really because uh, we shared those philosophies of he's... One thing that stood out to me when I met him and then when I started to be employed by him is he came up with like a, it's like a three-year plan. And so it goes through different aspects of your life. You talk about your finances, you talk about family relationships physical health, mental health, professional development. And you kind of set a score out of 10 where you think you are at the moment. And then you write a statement, which is speaking in the present tense, three years in the future. So I have done this in the last three years. And I've never been in a job where someone's done that with me. Right, he did that with you. Yeah. Right, right, right. And that's that kind of says a lot about the practice. Yeah. It's about that, that personal and professional development book guiding you through that process. I heard Jordan Peterson talk about something like that, that he does with his psychology students, similar thing, mm. like talking about your life in the future, depending on which path you take, right? Yeah. Like the one where you're still doing a job you hate, yeah. like what are you talking like there? And the one when you're doing the thing you want to do. So mm. quite a powerful thing, right? In terms of dialing in your aspirations. And also, I suppose, what it did for you was really you understood who Uva was and, and kind of how he could help you, how he was invested in you yeah. as a person, right? Yeah, definitely. And that says a lot, right? Because you you want to work for people who you respect and in turn you feel respected. Um, so I had an interesting conversation with one of my managers before I left and 
when I was working with cerebral palsy, um, there's a lot of spasticity associated with brain injuries. Um, some muscles really struggle to switch off because of that acquired brain injury. And so there's a treatment. What they normally do is they Botox these muscles just to help them relax. And so you'd see children come in with this cerebral palsy and they'd get Botoxed every six months. And some of the evidence would suggest that it's not good for muscles. And also you don't want to be sticking needles in kids. It's not a very nice experience for them. And so I came across shockwave therapy, which Uvi uses um, quite a lot. And I started to read some of the academic research about that. And the evidence shows that it's as effective as as, as Botox, but it doesn't have some of these problems. And I presented it to one of my managers. And I remember saying to me, um, you'll get in trouble for thinking like that. And I was quite shocked. Like when not I for sat, challenging the norm. Or for, yeah, and almost because they were like, oh, you've not thought about this because I was less qualified than okay. them. Right, okay. And I was like, actually, I have. Like, this is the research. I've read five or six papers. I've communicated with the person who's integrated it in Spain. Um, and that, for me, is I just don't need those barriers. I don't need those battles. And having stepped into Indigard, we can do that. You know, I said, I want to work with Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu, and here we are. You know, we're having that conversation. It's giving someone the tools to go and do that themselves. And whenever I've needed some guidance, I've got someone there, but just lets me crack on. Yeah, it seems quite forward thinking. Mm. Um, that's what really attracted me. I mean, funny though, because I'd, I'd, I didn't realise at the time, it's when we'd spent some time together and you you mentioned that quite a lot of CrossFitters go to Indigard. Yeah, yeah. I, I remember, maybe we were talking maybe four or five years ago, and I said this to him when he came down, Matt Robbo who runs CrossFit Regain, I think they're, they're Elios now. He'd said to me, I'd gone for a sports massage with him and he obviously is an ex-Marine as well and, and mm. I kind of know him. And he said, oh, there's this great guy down in, like this Norwegian fellow down in Gaffer. If you can't get fixed, like he's like the best around. Mm. So people were already starting to talk, right? Yeah. And that happens when people are pushing boundaries and they're kind of trying to like squeeze out every little large drop of what they know and what they can offer. Yeah. People who stand still and like the lady you spoke about who don't want to entertain any new ideas, no one talks about them. No. And that's what really attracted me to Indigard, that it felt like you guys were pushing forward and you were at the very top of your game, yeah. but you weren't standing still. And and it's nice as well to be around and working with someone who you know has those answers. So funny story, I went in this week and I had, had some really bad pain. So my clavicles were really hurting. I could just feel this pain in my chest. And when I relax, it's super painful. I was like, Uber, can you just have a look at this? Like, what is this wizardry? I laid on the table and he just started to massage my sternum. And I'm like, what's going on here? Retested and the pain's gone. I'm like, what are you doing? Like, it's like a wizard. And I right. think, you know, you need to be around people like that. Um, people that you respect, but you know, are knowledgeable, but don't lord that over you. Does so, that, do you feel like that when I roll with you too? <laughs> No, like, a, like an element of wizardry, no? <laughs> no wizardry, no, just, just impending doom and suffering. <laughs> Followed by a cry in the toilet. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> the fetal position in the corner, what might to share. Okay, quick break there, uh, but we're back. And I was just wondering uh, for Tom, if there's anything where someone comes into your clinic and they've got something particularly wrong with them, and in a strange way you feel like you've got all the answers and you know kind of like ah oh, perfect I know what I'm going to do with this person and, and the treatment methods and we're good to go I've got, I've got you back yeah so the one one I strangely enjoy is tendinopathies um, some people might commonly use things like tendinitis as nuances to the definition but in essence it's when the tendon goes into a state of disrepair um, and there's different ways that we can fix that it's usually coming down to overloading 
so they're training too much too often and not giving themselves time to recover or there's sometimes uh, biomechanical factors that can impact that where the tendon starts becoming rubbed at different against different tissues and it can aggravate that and that's my favorite thing is when they come in i can see them start saying like different points it's ticking my tendinopathy box because i'm planning the rehab for a long time and there's part of me with my own ego that loves to have people walk away going whoa like this is this is going to fix me um and i see quite a lot of that um and when we combine it with different treatments it it's just a different level because they've gone to see different physios before who haven't been specific in their diagnosis and they've been given things that might be counterproductive to tendon pain like massive amounts of stretching those sorts of things so when someone comes in with a tendinopathy and they walk out with a plan so it's not oh one session right we're going to look at this you say right this is these are your benchmarks we'll test you here when we come back and by the time you finish you should be able to do this movement without pain you should be able to do your sport waking up the next day without pain and then when they walk out there saying you know what in eight weeks 12 weeks 14 weeks time i'm going to be back uninhibited um to sport or to activity that's that's pretty cool aside from you kind of um you know your primary role is like this physiotherapist is there an element of like human psychology where you've kind of got to convince a person to like take a step away from training even though they might just like oh, i'm gonna blast through it i'll be all right eventually yeah i mean a big part of the job in essence is behavior change um because they've got themselves into this position due to behaviors or also due to um just be a lack of education in certain areas it's not that everyone's job to be physios right our strength coaches but the biggest challenge i face with is with those who overtrain so i had someone come to see me a few weeks ago with a tendinopathy and they said right you're going to have to back your training off a little bit do this do this do this but if you hit these benchmarks you'll be at back training to full level at this in this amount of time and got a few emails from them saying like can i do this can i do this like a list of exercises can i do can i do can i do can i do but then they came to see me a few days ago and they're like oh it feels loads better they're like i did have a breakdown at some point in the week so i went to train but i'm like his eyes on the prize right and you've got yourself into the situation and then when you walk away from it and they've gone out of there saying i can manage my pain effectively i i've got tools for this that's that's a game changer because they've grown their mindset's changed and they're so much more educated about their condition rather than me just saying oh it's knee pain we'll fix it and them not knowing anything else about it do you feel like the role of kind of the physiotherapist and um like strength coaches and things like that are becoming more um and more important as that we see an increase in things like you know people sitting down more on the phones more um eating not so healthy these kind of things do you see the role of like a the strength coach and physiotherapy that kind of thing almost rising in almost similar levels as where like doctors are for like treating disease and things like that yeah and so recently the nhs implemented something called first contact physios um so what they saw was a massive amount of referrals into gp surgeries for musculoskeletal pain and so actually they said it's probably in our best interest to have a physio at the gp clinic because they're more suited to deal with this these conditions um so just as a bit of statistic since people started working from home since the first lockdown 80 percent of those people who started working from home reported a new musculoskeletal complaint and so there's definitely a place for it but i think it's raising awareness for that because some people think physio is only for post-surgical problems or it's something when i'm in the hospital but in reality it's 
little aches and pains. It's about you have the right to be pain free and you have the right to be able to live your life in a way that is sustainable and you feel like you can meet the demands of it. And if you feel like you can't meet the demands of your life because of pain, then that's the time you should see a physio. Have you met people, uh, uh, a lot of people who kind of um, just withdrawn to the fact that they're, they've just accepted that they're going to be in pain for however long or just for the rest of their lives? Yeah, um, probably one of the best experiences I had a few weeks ago, well, months ago, a man came to see me who'd been um, walking with a stick for the last four years with back pain came to see me, same old story. I've just come here, my wife's dragged me here. I don't think you can help me. And um, I was like, what's your pain like through the week? And it's like it's nine out of 10. And this person said to me at some point, they even considered things like suicide. Um, it was that bothering them that much. And so I said, instead of us looking at pain as the measure, let's have some objective markers. So we'll look at range of specific range of movements where your symptoms are flowing up. And when we shifted that focus from pain and we changed that focus to range of movement and then hitting these little markers. Third session, he came in without his stick. He's like, my pain is like a two out of 10. It's like, I can walk again. I never thought I could do that. And I didn't really do a lot, but we worked together and we set goals together. And so, like I mentioned before, it's that trade-off of you coming in wanting answers and you're leaving with some of your own answers and you can look for your life and say, this might be contributing it or this might be contributing to it and then you work together to get that outcome. Is that a mindset shift for him then? Like instead of focusing completely on the pain, he's now focusing on other things to try and focus on like like the range of movement. So pain isn't the only conversation, right? Yeah. And even that can change how we feel pain, right? Like yeah. if, if we're telling ourselves we're in pain, we're going to feel more of it. Yeah. And if we tell ourselves actually... I'm maybe not feeling as much pain or I've achieved something else. I think pain can decrease. It's definitely a lot to do with getting that balance, I would suggest, between the actual physiological thing and the mental approach too, right? Yeah, and and, in pain, you'll hear physios go on and on about it, but we talk about pain as being multifactorial and it is a subjective thing. You know, your pain is different to my pain and People have had pain for a long time. Some of the research that's shown that if you're exposed to pain for long periods of time, it can create changes in the brain where things like touch to you, which feels fine, becomes painful to them. And so it's unpacking some of those processes as well. Um, and that can be a long thing. Like I think chronic pain is often dealt with um, not, very, not with a lot of care. So I've had a lot of people coming with things like fibromyalgia, are problems where um, they've dealt with pain for so long and because it's an exclusion by diagnosis other people assume that it's fake and it's not that it's just so complex you need to pick apart these lifestyle factors it's not that they're doing anything wrong in their life but what's their perception of what's going in the joint versus what's my perception of what's going yeah, in the exactly. joint and let's let's be clear on those definitely are there many times where, where you kind of have those people that feel that they've just accepted that they're going to be injured or in pain for a long period of time. Roughly speaking, are there many times where you just see that person and they're like, oh, now you actually, yeah, you're a bit, you're done in, mate. I'm sorry. There's <laughs> not much you can do for you. There's, there, there are some, and there are some people who, who don't get better. And what I see a lot of times is it's trust. Um, and this is one thing that I can beat myself up about because I messaged Uva uh, a while ago about it, saying I get sometimes a bit frustrated when some people don't get better. And one thing he said to me is about, well, it's, 
people don't necessarily always um, understand that therapeutic partnership and their involvement in that as well. Because a lot of times when you imagine you've been to hospital appointments your whole <clears> life, you're going there and you're, you get expecting answers and you expect those, those people can only give you answers and you kind of outsource your thinking to those professionals when in reality it's you go into that professional, you trust what they say and then you need to commit to what they do and you're looking for those changes. Some people really struggle with that and this isn't hitting people with the judgment stick but when you've been integrated in a process for 20, 30 years of being told, you know, chronic changes and all this business, it's hard to get around that. So what I see a few times, I'll have people come in and bring their MRI results in. Almost like I had one person almost just throw them on the table at me. He's like, I'm broken. That's it. And I read through the MRI results. I'm like, actually, this isn't that bad. And if you look at a typical sort of 50-year-old, you'll probably see these changes and they might be actually incidental to your pain. They might not be causing your pain. Because an MRI is an objective picture, but the interpretation is always subjective. Um, and so one quick thing they did a few years ago, um, they got a lady in the States to go around different doctors and get MRI scans for her back pain. She had 30 different MRI scans, saw 30 different doctors, and across those 30 diagnoses, not a single diagnosis was consistent. Wow. So it's about using those things that it can direct your assessment, but an MRI scan isn't a complete assessment. So I'd like to move on to some, uh, some question stuff. Yep. Um, but first I've actually got a personal question. Sure. <laughs> um, so I, I put quite a big fan of uh, Kelly, Kelly Sturrett, if you've heard of him. Um, and he, he had a guy on, uh, talking to him called Gary Rinnell, who was the guy who coined the term rice, like rest, ice, compression, elevation thing. Mm-hmm. And he wrote a book uh, called Iced, mm-hmm. um, saying that he's kind of changed his opinion on ice and injuries. Yeah. Um, and it's something kind of, I personally, I, I read the book and, and I thought that kind of makes sense to in my head, what he's explained there. Mm-hmm. And then since doing that, I don't, uh, ice injuries when, and usually I'll, tr- I'll give people that advice if they ask, if they, if they ask me, mm. but it, I just wanted to know your thoughts on ice and injuries. So um, I'll, I'll flip the question yeah. back to you. Now, why would you recommend not to use ice? So it, from what I understood, uh, ice is, so when you get a swelling on an injury, it's mm. kind of the, again, this is going to be very wrong, I'm sure. Mm. It's like deoxygenated blood mm. and that kind of thing. We want to kind of increase circulation to that area because that's where all the, the, the nutrients or, or mm. is going into that area. So ice is going to kind of restrict your, um, restrict blood flow to the area. Mm. Uh, it's good for if you want to numb pain, mm-hmm. but then um, your lymphatic system where the, all that stuff is getting drained away, mm-hmm. that only works if um, it works on like a, a cylindrical kind of compression system. Mm-hmm. So if you want stuff to drain away, uh, you need to either have it compressed or movement. Yeah. Um, Nice and doesn't fit into that model, basically. Yeah. Is what my, my very rough understanding of reading this book it was about. A good years ago. It was very good. It was very complex. I know. I was going to say it was good though. And um, yeah, so I'd probably this it's context for everything, right? And so historically, we always talk like rice ice compression, rest ice compression, elevation. Um, but yeah, I would agree with you. So inflammation is a natural process, and so if you think of a typical injury, you've got three phases. You've got an inflammatory phase which is where you're in pain, it's hot, swollen, and that typically can last anywhere between three to five days. 
then you've got something called a proliferation phase. And so these phases all kind of cross over each other, but your proliferation phase is where you start to lay down sort of granulation tissue where collagen, which kind of gives strength to certain joints, starts to lay down. And then the final phase is the remodeling phase where most of your loading and your strength work starts to get tissues the way you want them to be. And so the thought behind um, icing is you disrupt that inflammatory phase to a degree. And so the context, what I would say is I don't ice injuries if I have a bit of a problem, I'll just kind of go with it. However, in a professional sports environment, um, some of the research would suggest that by icing in a performance environment. So when I used to do skeleton, um, if I was racing the next day and I trained with ice to try and reduce that amount of inflammation to maintain performance. Um, Just like an ice bath would. Yeah, and that's what we'd do. And fun times taking me back wheelie, to... Wheelie bin. Yeah. Bag of ice. Oh, we used to punch a hole in the lake and go for a swim. Um, but so it's not very strong either way, um, the evidence for icing, because you could argue, and some of the research has shown us that it doesn't go deep enough into the tissues. But in terms of pain management strategies, um, I would use it for some people when it's become a little bit more chronic, um, just to kind of desensitize those tissues a bit. Because at the same time, you don't want to disrupt the inflammatory process, but you also want people to move. And if they're not going to move without icing, I would rather them ice and move than right, not ice. Not, you know what so, I mean? So if someone, it. let's say in the in a jiu-jitsu context, then someone, I don't know, sprained their ankle on the mat or yeah. you know their elbow hurt a little bit, would you put a cold compress on just to get home or not? I, partic- I wouldn't really. I mean, okay. everyone's probably got their own thoughts on it. Um, but I think that, that inflammatory phase is an important one, particularly if we're recreational athletes and we're not kind of pushing for the next Olympic Games, not all of us anyway. Um, and so I would probably just crack on. Um, one, <laughs> everyone's an expert though. And I've, I remember being at a club where someone had quite a, a nasty um, fracture of their ankle. And I said, I like, need to get x-rayed. Like, can't step on it. It's a big problem. And then someone popped in, one of them are, experienced uh, grapplers was like no mate you just need to get in a nice warm bath and it'll get much better and like no no get it x-rayed um but yeah so it's context um but you know for people with longer term pain there's certain things i'll ask people to ice for and just to kind of get their pain under control i'd rather them move more than anything because lack of movement is is a big stopper in rehab sure I think something answered for that time. Nice, thanks for the question. Appreciate that. question. Are we yeah. using ice or not? That's what I want to know. <laughs> I'm going to continue not using ice unless I'm into the. I'll do what most physios <laughs> say and just say it depends. <laughs> <laughs> Wait, what's your answer? Well, I'm 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 still going to use kind of cold water therapy, I think, and hot cold because I I just kind of like the feeling yeah, anyway. Yeah, yeah. Um, but I think personally, I quite like if I've like bumped my head or something, just a bit of something cold, maybe it just takes the pain away. Well, or why don't you give it a little kiss better? Yeah, no. Yeah. I'm sticking with the ice. <laughs> but it's one of those things is... We well, offer that at the gym, so just if anyone does, and if you want a cold compress, you can have one. Just speak if to you Mike don't, about you it. Don't. Depends oh. if you come to Mike or yeah, yeah, yeah. I'll give you a kiss better. <laughs> I'll give you a compress. <laughs> Um, so let's move on to some of the questions we've got asked on the Instagrams and feel free to blitz through this as quick or yeah. as slow yeah, as you yeah, see I've given you a quick look at the questions so you'll know which ones you want to spend more time on and which ones we can uh, move move from quick uh, so first one from Gracie Barra Harrogate uh, about fixing shoulder mobility more of a statement than a, than a question there yeah. but uh, any any thoughts around sh- shoulder mobility is it something that you see a lot of people suffer from yeah um, you see it a lot in judo 
Um, obviously, because judo is like super top heavy, yanking and pulling people around by the gi. But you obviously see in jiu-jitsu. Shoulder mobility, there's a few things, and I'm probably going to cop out on most of these questions and saying an important part of it is an assessment. So it's what's driving that lack of range of movement. And so mobility is your ability to kind of access full joint range actively. And so there are a lot of people who go and just passively stretch things, but is a stretch, can you achieve that range actively without having to stretch to get into it? And a big thing when you look at things like hypermobility is people have more passive range than they have active range. And so when there's a, a gap in that, they're at more risk of injury because there's certain aspects of the joint they can go through without having a muscular strength through there. And so fixing shoulder mobility is a case of finding out what's driving the range of movement, what's the desired range of movement. And then what we do a little bit in the clinic is um, some of this thing called functional range assessment. It's formed by a a black belt called uh, Andreas Spina over in the States. And it's about looking at what the joint capacity is and then helping give helping people generate the strength to transmit forces through those ranges and get strength through those ranges. So a big part of it, I had, I'll, I'll use an example, someone coming to clinic, a bit of a bodybuilder, powerlifting type, terrible shoulder range. It's like my traps hurt, my neck hurts. And he couldn't get his arms, probably couldn't get his arms up to his ears. They were super stiff. And so what we worked on with him was getting, giving him strength through that shoulder range. There wasn't a lot of stretching, but there was a lot of, active strength work into end ranges um, and I think there's very much an old school mentality as we develop flexibility by stretching more but in reality if you can't access those range with active strength um, you're not going to be using it effectively so in short to address shoulder mobility I would challenge joint ranges with hard sort of muscle contractions at end ranges excellent uh, so next one is from uh, Bob Hardin, stuck his name on the end, so I'm sure he's going to be okay with hey, Bob. it. Thanks, Bob. Uh, any advice for the older student? And of course, we've mentioned Tom already changed jiu-jitsu. And so, uh, yeah. you know, as the <clears> throat> throat> I guess it's kind of staying healthy and staying in the game for as long as possible, right? Yeah, and I think that's kind of what most of us want when we're training, really, isn't it? Um, it's being robust, and so not just always playing to your strengths and developing a bit more of a... Um, wider game in terms of your movement patterning so as we get a little bit older we reinforce habits the way we walk the way we move the way we hold ourselves and so it's about developing strength and capacity so a lot of people see strength training as going to the gym just getting strong what do you squat what do you bench what do you deadlift and in reality it's about are you preparing those muscles and those joints to deal with the demands that are placed upon them and so injury always occurs when the force that goes through the joint is, isn't is matched by the capacity at the joint. So we'll, we'll do some of this stuff. Obviously, we start producing video content, um, but it's about developing strength, developing about range of movement and developing muscle capacity and strength in certain ranges to, to increase your longevity, really. Excellent. I think another thing on that from a jiu-jitsu school owner's perspective is making smart choices when you train. So it's like, and this is for, goes for any age group, right? It's about rolling in the right way. Mm. It's about expressing yourself in jiu-jitsu in the right way. And you could go to a gym which is very competitive and high energy. If you want to have a long, if you want to have longevity in your jiu-jitsu journey, it's probably not the place to go. I would seek out a gym which is a bit more holistic and focus on health like ours, right? 
Yeah, I remember listening to Frost Harvey speak one time about that, about he much prefers a student to be rolling and and training with the intent of staying injury free Mm. and train consistently for a longer period of time than training seven days a week, six days a week, hard for two months, gets an injury, he's out for another month and then he's on and off. And he speaks with a certain amount of experience and knowledge. So for people who don't know who he is, who is he to? He's the uh, head coach at TriStar uh, Jiu-Jitsu and the uh, head coach for uh, George St. Pierre, the UFC fighter. So he knows what he's talking about. Yeah. <laughs> and I, I just think to add on that, we were, we were talking about this earlier, Mike, is it's a, it is about the culture of the gym and and also mindset and ego. Um, probably last year, I was, not the year before, because last year was a bit right off, um, I kept breaking my toe. <laughs> And Kicking was, walls, Tom. Yeah, so, <laughs> well, actually, I did that in a roll. It's, I used to train in a bit of an old mill, and so I kicked the wall and I tried to hit bridge. And what I decided to do from that point was, like, I'm training too hard, and if I keep training like this, I'm just going to keep getting this toe injured. So every session I said, you know what, if someone absolutely destroys me, that's fine. I'm going to go at 40 50%. These are my focus points. And so if someone taps me, like I had people who've never tapped me before tap me, Throw the ego in the bin a little bit and and just focus on your processes. That's awesome advice, man. Um, and also, you know, that allows you then to train, like you say, with injury because there's always something you can develop. Mm. I mean, it goes back to your point about always kind of going to your strengths as well. I, I'm going to be encouraging all our students to play to their weaknesses. Mm. And if you're a great top game player, we should be playing guard more often like I do. Um, and understanding then that you want to become the complete jiu-jitsu fighter, right? So the next question is, um, uh, I'm sure it might, it's a sim- again, we can cover it quickly because I'm sure it'll be similar to maybe the um, shoulder kind of mobility thing, but hip mobi- so he says, uh, hip mobility is a big one for me. Uh, be good to get some tips just around hip mobility. Yeah, so if you, not a lot of jiu-jitsu players actually have that good hip mobility unless you're training at 10th Planet. So for those who don't know 10th Planet's a gym run by a guy called Eddie Bravo who's got quite an unorthodox approach to jiu-jitsu. Um, and he trains all their athletes to be super flexible. A lot of the um, the techniques they use require a lot of hip mobility and space. But typically, what you'll find when when people first start training jiu-jitsu is they'll use a lot of strength. They'll be hanging on. They'll be in closed guard. They'll be squeezing their legs together, and they develop a lot of tightness in those adductor muscles on the inside of the legs. And so, like we talked about, it's developing a, a wider and more diverse game. And also do some specific joint work and um, looking at getting um, some strength into your hips in different ranges. And, and that's once again, um, feels like a bit of a pitch here, but it's going to see the right person with the knowledge who can say, I understand the demands of what jiu-jitsu are, and then this is how we're going to help you meet those demands. And, I, and I'm actually doing some stuff now, which you've prescribed for me, right, mm. around yeah. working on that hip hip range to the 1990 mm. transitions and stuff. Yeah. And like already in this, I'm not saying it because you're here, already I know that I feel different in my hips. Yeah. And already I've got an improvement in my range of motion. Yeah. And the comfortable feeling of sat upright in that 1990, which I didn't have. Yeah. I now feel like I've got better posture. So yeah. and it can happen real quick too, right? As soon as you start to implement some of these changes, some of these practices, but real quick, it goes back to what you're saying. You've got to commit to it. Yeah. You've got to be doing it every single morning. Getting it done. And yep. tea. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> I need to start, of course. Um, uh, yeah, again, uh, the one, the in-depth kind of one. Uh, oh, I'm going to mess up some pronunciations Go here. Go for it. 
Bankart, Labralter, and Shallow Hill Sacks lesion on shoulder. What post-surgery rehab? So that's one that comes down to an assessment. So that's quite a complex fracture um, that you'll get in the shoulder. It usually comes with an anterior dislocation. Um, yeah, as we well, don't want to cop out here, but what you'll find is, as as I have, a, I've got a little bit of an Instagram account going. It's not the most popular in the world, but I get quite a lot of engagement on it. And I'll get questions saying, "I've got back pain. What's the best exercise for back pain? Or the best exercise for knee pain?" And it's a case of understanding you, your history, what's going on. Um, and prescribing the right thing and so it'd be a case of finding out what the surgery was how they managed it how many weeks ahead are you what what he demands what do you want to get back to um, so in that case to do credit to the physio because if I sent you some exercises you'd be like it's probably a really bad physio <laughs> it's a case of just looking at how you're presenting and then how we can treat it based on your expectations for sure and uh, Tom's Instagram will be linked in the description along with uh, Indicards um, if anyone wants to uh, link up with Tom. Uh, next question, how will training affect patellofemoral pain syndrome? Is that right? <laughs> yeah, um, d- depends. You'll have to find when you train. Yeah. Um, but it, it's another one of these things where PFJ pain, in short, is just just knee pain in essence. So it's where your patella meets your femur. Um, and some people can get them for different reasons. You see in a lot of guys who squat quite a lot. And you might see a bit of pain um, Sometimes in kneeling, it depends on kind of the nature and strength in the joint. And so it's one of the advantages we're going to have with this partnership is we we get to touch base on these things. So, you know, I can say if you come to see me and if you're happy with me sharing some of this information with Mike, we can say, right, when you train, we want you to work in this position. We want to develop strength in this position while we rehab it appropriately. Excellent. I think that that probably already covers the last question of how to prevent a sore knee. Maybe we can go on a bit more on prevention kind of things. Yeah, and it'll come back to some of the videos we do. It's it's right. It's the right technique. It's the capacity you've got for load, and are you accessing those joint ranges appropriately? And where are you compensating, and, and how do we address those compensations? Excellent, uh, Tom. Do you want to just uh, to finish this up? Maybe just to talk a, a little bit about uh, Indigard, and maybe just any of the kind of things you wanted to uh, address to give people a bit more information about who you guys are and that kind of thing. Yeah, so Indigard Physio, we're based in Garforth. Um, we're at Monday to Saturday. Um, and I think having spoken to quite a lot of clinics, a big part of my professional development and wanting to be better was finding the right place to be. And we mentioned this before, but what I've seen in, in the development of COVID is an increased amount of um, video consultations. And I had a bit of a discussion with a physio who um, I trained with and he said to me, well, it's great. I, they really badly fractured their ankle. I said, oh, it's great. I get to do uh, loads more video consultations and build like patient independence. I was like, well, what's your measure? Like, how do you know they're getting better? He's like, oh, discharge. And I'm like, well, how do you quantify a successful discharge? So, well, you know, they're not in the service anymore, but it's, it's not, it's not any input from the patient. It's not what they want to do. It's the physios prescribed a baseline. And if they hit that baseline, that's good enough to discharge them. Whereas at Indergaard, it's a case of we get to see someone face to face. We get to assess them. They walk out going, I've got this problem. And in this time frame, I can get better. And also we've got some really cool tools. So we deal with a lot of kind of shoulder problems. 
And if you've ever heard, have you ever heard of something called a bursitis? Yeah, yeah, I had bursitis in both my knees. <laughs> yeah, typical jiu-jitsu. You'd be a number one, number yeah. one customer. Yeah. And so a bursitis is you, between your shoulder joint, you've got a lot of space where some of the uh, muscles and tendons run. And the bursa is like a thick bag of fluid and that helps lubricate the joint. And if you fall on your hand or sometimes it can develop through poor loading, that bursa becomes like thick and quite hot, quite grumpy and it limits your range of movement. So typically, the pathway would be someone has a bursitis, we rest it, and we start to gradually introduce strength. But what we know is we use things like shockwave, or we've got another machine called electromagnetic transduction therapy, which goes right into the joint and massively improves um, the speed of the recovery. So I have one client at the moment who fell on his arm had a really nasty bursitis, really swollen, really hot. You could even feel it through his shoulder, the temperature. Um, and he kept coming back to see him. He's like, it's still not quite, it's not quite there. Um, so we decided, he, he then decided, and we talked about shockwave before, to use shockwave therapy. And came back to see me today, actually. And after one week, he's like, my shoulder pain's gone. Wow. And so then that gives us a window to say, now we can strengthen you. Whereas the pain was inhibiting that before. So that's, you know four or five weeks off his rehab because we've got the right equipment to do that. Excellent. Um, Mike, was it before we kind of uh, start signing this off, is there any questions you had for Tom? Um, I've got lots about my own mobility, <laughs> but we'll, we'll get to that. No, not so much questions now. I think why I want people to feel, the people who are listening to this, if they're members of ours, is that they should have confidence that if you come and train with us, Two things. One, you're going to be protected by us as instructors, and this is a safe place to train with a great culture of supportive community and, and people are safe to come and express themselves in jiu-jitsu. And two, should the worst happen, or maybe you have an injury and you're sat there thinking, I'd love to start jiu-jitsu, but I don't know where to start because mm-hmm. of my knee, my elbow. We've got the best people in the business right by our side and you can access them and it's a two-way conversation, right? Yeah. So it should give people confidence that we are... invested in their health holistically. And I'm just excited to have Tom and me on board. I think think to second that as well, having trained at quite a lot of jiu-jitsu gyms, I think you've kind of tried to develop this culture, aren't you, of rolling safely, developing your jiu-jitsu. And for that path to be more of a linear path than being stopped by all of these injuries that occur, you know, there's plenty of times I've trained and I've gone into gyms and I've woken up the next day and I've just gone to war for an hour where I just feel broken. And I'm like, that is, it doesn't feel sustainable. It just feels like you're in a bit of a fight. And I think, you know, you mentioned it. You'd had conversations with people who you thought maybe don't quite fit the culture. And you, you know, you can have that with them. And I think it's for people to feel safe coming through the doors because it's, it's a sport that requires us to fight each other and to challenge joint ranges. But at the same time, it doesn't mean it can't be done safely, given the right instruction. Excellent. Well, uh, Tom, we didn't actually get much of a chance to talk about your own kind of jiu-jitsu and, and um, style and philosophy and, and that kind of thing. So we'll definitely have you back on if you have some time. We'll yeah, just talk all good. about jits and, Happy uh, to and, and, and that to. kind of thing. Um, but thank you very much for coming on today. Um, members, definitely reach out to uh, Tom and, and Indigard and, and get all your, uh, your injuries and... and um, become more prepared for uh, for the trials on Jiu-Jitsu ahead. And um, until next time, guys, thank you very much, uh, Tom. Thank you, Mike. Cheers, thank you. See you next time. Cheers, guys. Bye.